right, folks, welcome back. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. And remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank, belongs to you and money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. We are here with a local roundtable and joining us here for both hours here. Actually, both ladies joining us for both hours here. Dr. Kimberly Moffitt, Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, co-editor of Blackberries and Redbones, Critical Articulations of Black Care, Body Politics, and Africana Communities. Dr. Carsonia Whitehead, K. Whitehead, of course, Associate Professor of Communication and African and African American Studies at Loyola University of Maryland, author of a number of books, including My Black Sons, Raising Boys in a Post-Racial America. Joining us by phone is Joshua Harris, community activist, former Green Party candidate for mayor, uh, and good to have you all here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can write to us here at talk at steinershow.org by email. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. And, Bobby, you're the first caller up. We're going to come to your call. Well, let me just get some thoughts here from our guests, and we're going to go right immediately to the phones. We want to hear your ideas on what makes Baltimore a stronger city. Mm. How do you get there? I've been reading a great deal about what people are calling fragile cities from around the globe. <laughs> and so I kept thinking about what makes a fragile city. And then I'm realizing, I think Baltimore is a fragile city uh, in many ways. Um, and it seems to have, in many ways, a lack of direction in terms of where we want to go and where our priorities, priorities are. And it's difficult to get there. You know, we've talked a lot in this program about what it would mean to cut the police budget. And I think that would kind of unsettle a lot of people in mm -hmm. this community mm -hmm. across the board uh, because of their fear of violence. Um, but also you have to look at where we are in the city and where we do invest the money and how we get there. This is not an easy trick. It's not easy for Mayor Pugh, uh, who I think is in some ways struggling to find the, the direction and answers to, to her administration, um, especially in this arena. It's not easy for people in the community at large to figure this out. And I think that the you look at the Greater Baltimore Committee, which is opposed to kind of doing that to the police budget, but this is not just about the police budget. Mm -hmm. It's about what you, w w the disconnect here and how we reconnect. Is it possible to reconnect? And what do you do from a local level out? You know, and I and I and so Kimberly, I'm going to put you on the spot and start with you, but only because, not only because, but part, in part because, um, when you saw an issue with where schools were going and where your own son might be going, mm -hmm. you decided to create help create. A middle school, mm -hmm. a public school, mm -hmm. right? So the question is, how do how does how does one, how do we begin to do that in a large community sense and roll up our sleeves to start configuring and thinking about what a different city could be? And and for me, I would say that's probably at the core of what makes Baltimore a fragile city for me is what we do or don't do with um, public education. And I still, you know, one of my um, one of my biggest criticisms about the public school system in particular is what we do or don't do around issues 
issues of mental health and trauma and um, not providing the support systems in our schools to actually help our students. And so a lot of what we end up doing is just kind of putting that lipstick on a pig where it looks good. Our boys or any student, not just at my school, but anywhere are coming to school in uniforms that are coordinated and we're offering the technology in the buildings that we think um, will help them in this 21st century world, but we're not having the real deep conversations about what's going on with our children and how they're being impacted by so much of what else is happening in this fragile city that allows them then to come into the doors of our schools and be able to thrive. And so for me, public education has been the the foremost significant issue personally that I think needs to be addressed in this city. And I'm not sure that a lot of us have embraced that. I know we talk the talk. I know that we are interested in saying something needs to happen with public education, but exactly what that is, we don't know. I mean, even if you look at the um, the divergent conversations about traditional schools versus charter schools, and, and I'm always in the, in the center of this as someone who is a charter school founder, but also a parent in a school and what that means. And so I don't align myself wholeheartedly with the charter operators of this city because I'm always thinking about the 320 boys that are in my building. And I can't do I can't do the thinking about the children while worrying about everything that needs to happen for you to check check off a box to say that our school is in compliance um, with North Avenue or Central Office. And so for me, it has to be a focus on what's happening in the schools, in particular with our children so that they can thrive and then be successful academically. Hmm. Um, and I know you're, you're, you're not yet with childhood, with children, uh, Joshua, you're not a father <laughs> yet, but you, I'm sure you will be at one some point in life. Um, but so your, your thoughts on this before we come back into the studio? Well, you yeah, know, absolutely. Uh, I, I don't have uh, my own children, but I have lots of children that I care for and that are in my life. I was well said. Someone the other day, I spent a lot of time at schools for someone that doesn't have children and at school board meetings and such. But I think this is absolutely right. Uh, the education system is definitely something that leads to making this a fragile fiddle city. And I think that there's other factors, too, because then the concern is, okay, as we move forward, if we're able to invest in education of our young people and put them in stable school environments and educate them appropriately, we don't necessarily have the job base on the economic stability to sustain them to stay here uh, after high school graduation, even looking at college. So what is our industry? What are we going to um, prepare the, the next wave of industry for in Baltimore? And are we looking at that, the outlook of that and what those industries look like to make sure that we are creating jobs for our young people as they graduate high school and college to be able to keep them here. Uh, and so there's a lot of different factors that go into um, this being a fragile city, uh, including, I mean, when we look at e the economic factors, what does that look like um, when we look at brownfield cleanup? And what does it look like when we have dealing with cleaning up asbestos and lead paint in our city? All these things play into the instability or the fragileness of our city, and they have to be dealt with. Um, I, I believe there has to be a comprehensive plan, and one of the things that I think perpetuates Baltimore in being a fragile city is that it seems to be a lack of collaboration across agencies and across programs to really understand the bigger picture. And I've seen Dr. Wynn, who's come in and really understands the public health approach, or uh, as we call it, health in all policies approach, to try to move in that direction 
And uh, you're absolutely right, though, Mark, when you say that it's not an easy decision or an easy task to create. And, and uh, Mayor Pugh needs all the help that she can get um, from people who are committed to making a difference and uh, stabilizing our city. I'm, I'm curious. I want. I would love for Joshua to respond and tell me what he sees as our current industries in our city, and what are some of the potential industries that we can cultivate in the city. Well, I think right now we know that Baltimore's major industry, of course, is tourism and hospitality. That is the the one that is the, the driving force uh, uh, in Baltimore City. Uh, I think that for me, again, as I stated on my campaign trail, one industry that is wide open and we have the opportunity to really create jobs and stability in is clean energy. Uh, and that hasn't changed. We have, I think, about another year and a half, maybe two, to really capitalize on the growth of that industry, even despite what we've seen on the national level with President Trump. Um, some of the things that he's done to try to retrogress, we still know that clean energy is one of the fastest growing industries in the country. Uh, and so we have an opportunity to um, really uh, emerge a leader in that industry and in that field um, for the eastern region uh, if we are proactive and working to attract companies um, to do that. And that can create jobs all the way down from your blue-collar jobs all the way up to white-collar jobs in that industry. Uh, I think there's other opportunities, of course, in STEM as we move forward um, that are available in uh, technology um, that we have not yet really uh, looked at how do we attract those companies to come here to Baltimore. Um, but the STEM and t technology uh, and then clean energy are two of the emerging industries that I think that we should really focus in on trying to attract to Baltimore. I mean, well, I mean, uh, the, the, the hospitality industry in Baltimore is huge. I mean, a hundred thousand or so people employed, not all of them living in Baltimore City. Mm -hmm. um, but I think probably the fastest growing industry in Baltimore and the most significant one in terms of high paying jobs is biomedical. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and are we preparing young people for that? Or, and the, and this is the growth in the port. Are we preparing young people to take those jobs, skilled and unskilled jobs, in the port that's growing, which takes, mm -hmm. takes a huge amount of computer skills? We're not preparing our kids for that. I mean, I think that that's, you know, I yeah. mean, there, 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 there are lots of ways to kind of alleviate this. And I think, think clean energy is a piece of it as well. And it could be a huge piece. Okay, before we hit the phone, did you want to say something? Oh, I definitely wanted to just kind of. <laughs> oh, really? How <laughs> odd. Yeah. We Join the conversation a little bit. I was, I was getting order coffee hours, like, you know what, <laughs> as I'm sitting here. Um, but I just, as I'm entering into the conversation, I think uh, just by way of being very transparent, that I kind of enter into this conversation a couple of different ways. Uh, one is I've recently been installed as a commissioner with the Community Relations Commission, which was originally known, I mean, people are familiar with, it used to be the Baltimore Equal Opportunity right. uh, Employment Opportunity Commission. So I am now a commissioner for that and looking at this notion of discrimination in housing and employment and, and we look at wages as well, what's happening in neighborhoods. Um, and the reason why I decided to, to take up this call that was put forth by Jill Carter is because though I also think that Baltimore City is a fragile city. We do have strong people within this city, people who are committed to trying to find a way to turn back the tide of violence, who are trying to find a way to transform the schools, who are working on the local levels to make some type of input into making Baltimore City a better place for all of its residents. I mean, in my, my monthly column with the Baltimore Sun, I wrestle 
with these issues. I mean, my recent one talks about the fact that I, I often think as I'm raising two <coughs> black teenage boys, I think about leaving Baltimore City. I think about the fact that we're at the 100 and what, 71st day or something of the year and we've had 162 or so murders. I think about that. And every time I get close to packing my bags and screaming to my husband, let's go, I ride through Baltimore City and I'm charmed all over again. Mm. You know, by the diversity, by, by the small neighborhoods, by places like Red Emma's and Red Canoe, by the sense that people are here like Baltimore Block and leaders of a beautiful struggle that people want to see change happening in this city so we might be fragile on the larger level but on a local level there are people who are committed to the heart and the soul of Baltimore City and who will not let this city die even if things we have to take it over and change it for but ourselves. Yeah, but I mean, so I'm curious what, I mean, what that means I mean I you have a, a city that we have a city here that is, <laughs> it's two separate worlds. It is. It is. Right? And we are not paying attention to one world of that, in that city other than moving people out and and not taking care of people's needs in, in this community. Mm. Um, and I, so, so the question is how do we, I don't know how we get to, what, what do we do that changes that? What do we do that changes the way we invest our resources and how we take care of the larger community and bring everybody up. Well, I think we and are I, paying attention to it just in the wrong way, right? We, we turn that that spotlight on them to talk about the violence, to talk about the crime, to talk about what's happened, <clears throat> rather than paying attention to them with ways to make it better. So I do think that part of the problem with, with Baltimore's reputation worldwide is that we pay so much attention to the issues, the problems, and not paying attention to how we can add some solutions there. Right. I don't disagree. We, and we, well, let me go over the phone to see what our listeners are thinking. 410-319-8888. I left him speechless. No. <laughs> uh, Bubby, you're on the air. Welcome. Good to have you back. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for taking my call. I, I listened to your panel, and I just like to address this. When you have two Baltimore's, just like the lady spoke about education, when the kids at Roland Park Elementary mm-hmm. is educated different than the kids at Gilmore Elementary, we have a problem. Mm-hmm. But let me let me go to my focus. I think that we can do generate jobs around our urban development, community development, trade schools. Case in point, the Baltimore City Housing Authority is the second worst run agency in Baltimore City, first being the Baltimore City Police Department. But nothing is never said until they embarrass on the news with scandals after scandal after scandal. Why isn't this mayor appointed an executive director mm-hmm. and a commissioner of housing yet? And keep in mind, this mayor represented that district of Sandtown, Winchester mm-hmm. for at least two decades. Now, we must be perfectly clear I was watching CNN yesterday, and they did a little documentary segment on West Baltimore. And it brought tears to my eyes that most people like myself for 20 years have been pointing out these same issues, and nothing has been done. And we are represented by a majority African-American city council and a mayor. Is they blind to this? One of your panelists mentioned the Greater Baltimore. Uh, a development corporation. Is they the true power that lies within Baltimore and causing the shock for poor people and working poor in this city? Well, yeah, so I mentioned the Greater Baltimore mm-hmm. Committee, which represents the, the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of power segments in our city, both corporately, um, banking, development, mm-hmm. um, and does a lot of good work. 
but I think that there's a disconnect with the with with the rest of the family. We've been disconnected for a long time. The class always disconnects. Let's get another call in here. 410-319-8888. Your thoughts. How do we make this city the place it needs to be? Veronica, you're on the air. There is a disconnect. I think it's a disconnect with the residents. The mm. working residents of our community. I, hear, I heard a lot about Ah uh, Ah, uh, you know, and I heard the other show earlier. David Brown, I think yesterday had a talk show on about how do we really solve our issues. We have to connect to our working class residents in the city. We have to form coalitions or more coalitions to bring to the forefront the issues that we work with. There's a lot of working people in Baltimore City. I mean, but we, but from, the, from what we hear um, over the air, you think crime is on the rise. And, but I just think that we have to reach out. And how are we going to solve this like what we used to do back in the 60s and 70s, we had great programs that brought people together, and we shared information. There wasn't no big eyes or little use. We shared. There was enough stuff out here that we could do enough programs that will work. But, you know, it can't be no big eyes. It has to be a we thing. And even, mm-hmm. you know, we have to we, what we can do. And then we have to get out back, you know, like when they used to do elections, I remember we used to go door to door. We used to, uh, because technology is so out there now, we don't, we used to go door to door and we used to package uh, literature. I always say it's 500 sheets and, uh, and a Xerox pack of paper. It takes nothing more. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I remember that era as well. I also remember the early 70s and late 60s, the city had a lot of federal money, mm-hmm. yeah. which they, we do not have any longer. Mm-hmm. So let me get one more call and we'll go back okay. to our – we have a lot of callers calling on this. So we're going to get <laughs> the idea. 410-319-8888. Theo, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'd like to address the commissioner uh, who was uh, the person appointed to the commission about equal opportunity. I think the biggest problem that exists – and why African Americans are not uh, succeeding as quickly as they should is because of this concept of people of color. I'm sure that Pakistanis and East Indians are people of color. I'm sure that Yanez Geronimo is a person of color. But their, their objectives are much different than the African American communities. These people of color are selling knives to young people in West Baltimore and East Baltimore. Uh, and again, even the Koreans, are Koreans considered a people of color? If they are, certainly their objectives are much different than those of the African-American community. I think every time we're going to mention black bodies or brown bodies, I think we should say that the focus must be on African-Americans who have suffered the most. Now, uh, Mark, you've been in Baltimore your entire life. No Pakistani or East Indian was ever um, uh, 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 discriminated against because they were all, at that time they were all doctors and so forth and engineers. So, again, I'm very concerned every time they speak of brown bodies and black bodies and don't emphasize African-American bodies, I think they're making an error. There's a concept, if you ever went to South Africa, if you, looked at, if you saw how an East Indian waiter looked at an African uh, who was in a restaurant, you would know what I'm saying. Again, so that's my position, and I think it's a big error where we don't focus when African-Americans are the ones who have suffered the most. 
and thanks right. for the time. Thank yeah. you for and your thoughts. I definitely I appreciate uh, your comments. One, it's the first time I'm taking comments as a commissioner, so <laughs> it's just nice to, to be in that position. Uh, two, I've been to South Africa, and I, I know what you're talking about, and I think for people to understand the ways in which South Africa is similar to and different from America in terms of the policies around apartheid, and I think what you're talking about, what I think you're talking about, are the ways in which East Indian waiters mistreat black people who come into the restaurants, if that's what you mean. In terms of the, the notion of the term people of color, because you were taking special issues with that term, that is a new term that has been used. It really talks about people who are of the non-white persuasion, especially black people. And when I say black and brown bodies, the idea of black bodies, we're talking about African-Americans, and I want to be clear that not every black person uses the term African-American. That term can be you know, particularly difficult for some people to accept, to connect. But when we say black and brown bodies, we're talking about African-Americans and we're talking about the Hispanic population. And do believe that when we look at who has been discriminated against in this city, we are not talking about, as you mentioned, the Pakistani community. I think you mentioned you talked about the Asian community uh, without talking about black and brown communities. And that is absolutely untrue. We look at discrimination as it's happening to black people or the term you want to use as African-American. Joshua, go ahead. I'd also like to touch on something that uh, Mr. Lucky brought up. Uh, He spoke about the housing commissioner and the atrocities that have uh, occurred there in that department for years now. Uh, There is clearly, um, it seems that this administration kind of started late. So there's several appointments that have yet to be made. And one, of course, is a housing commissioner. Uh, There's no one currently who's the uh, the director of criminal justice, which that office is extremely vital Mm -hmm. to combining the offices of the police department, the state's attorney's office, the office of public health, uh, and really putting together a comprehensive crime prevention plan. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we need good people who are really committed to making a difference in Baltimore City, uh, rather than people who may be looking to make stepping stones, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, of, of, of opportunities or positions um, for other political aspirations, but people who are really committed to making a difference in Baltimore City. Uh, and I think that the mayor has put out calls for people and is still looking for good people because this is uh, these departments and agencies are extremely, extremely vital. Uh, to stabilize in the city and, and moving away from being as fragile as we are. And I think that combined with that, we have to begin to see, and what we haven't seen yet is more of a focus on grassroots organizations who are actually in the trenches every day, right? So we see with the Department of Education, some of the support services that they use, they go to organizations like Humana consistently and give them millions of dollars mm. a year. Uh, and yet grassroots organizations that have been proven effective in schools and preventing violence and helping with education – do not see any of those budgets, right? Mm-hmm. It seems mm-hmm. extremely difficult for them to get access to it. And seeing collab- more collaborative efforts with smaller organizations that are in the trenches every day who would take a fraction of the budget that we're giving to these large companies and organizations, they've been much more effective. And so that's something that I would like to see and I think can help us move in a direction towards stability in the city. I completely agree with what Joshua is saying, in particular around issues of education. Again, that being one of the topics that resonates most with me is I was in attendance at a conference um, uh, that deals with K-12 schools recently and was baffled. And Mark, you and I had this conversation offline, how baffled I was at the number of corporations that were present there trying to titillate those of us who were there working for children 
children to earn our business so that they could then be a part of the work that we're doing for children in our school building, but yet we're writing big checks for them to be able to carry out that work. And so now we're at a spot where public education has become an industry of its own. So it's not public in the sense of what we've always seen it as from the moment of its creation. We're now in a space where we see that there is untapped opportunity and money to be made in public education. So let's reach out over here and tell them that we've got all of these resources that are needed in order for you to be successful in the public school venue and if you contract our services we can make it happen for you that's loads of money that in at the end of the day never sees our children it doesn't help them at all and, and, and mark i believe i said this on your last show but what we see is that black pain becomes a white jobs program again in several of our agencies and that has to change so let's take a short break here and come right back and i also want to say that that and theo the one thing i was thinking about what you said as we go to break here is that um, you know, when we talk about communities of color, this is a really important thing to talk about in America. It's not, it's not just black folks in America. I mean, clearly in Baltimore City and America, the, what racism has done in America, the black, the black community, the African diaspora is at the heart of all this. But also, um, not to create a further divide by kind of going after Pakistanis, Indians, oh, no. Koreans, Absolutely. and more. Um, that, and I think that, that um, that's important not to let happen as well. So we're going to take a short break and come back. And when we come back, we're going to turn this on over to our listeners. And let's see here. Uh, we're going to get to Jean, Elizabeth, Tisha. In that order, Rodney, Hank, stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show with Joshua Harris, uh, Dr. K. Whitehead, and Dr. Kimberly Moffat, and you at 410-319-8888. So I promise right to the phones. And Gene, and then Elizabeth, the next two callers up. Gene, you're on the air. Welcome. Uh, yeah, is it afternoon, good afternoon, or good morning? It's actually most of the morning, I think. <laughs> okay, good morning. At least half an hour more. <laughs> oh, yeah. My, my thing is, the way I'm confused is um, the use of, uh, the you know, I guess sort of post-racial, it is, huh. it, is it... Uh, we, who, you know, who is the we, who is the they, who is the I? I'm, you know, I get totally confused. Uh, we talk about 620,000 people in Baltimore. That's the we, it's 600,000. But the, but, the, but, but the we, the other we is the 65% that we're talking about, which is where the problem um, affects, you know, who, who, where the problem affects the most, who the problem affects the most. So that's 390 thousand people that's 65 percent of 600,000 but we don't you know what I mean we don't we don't talk about that but then when we talk about the the 35 percent who control the the, uh, the resources and the funds you know they they're, they're blended in with the we when, the, when when we're talking about the problem so I'm talking about the 390 uh, my, uh, when I sent my son to school I paid for private education I didn't get a tax credit a voucher or nothing you know what I mean? Where did my money go? Um, but eventually, he did go to Poly for a year, and then went to Indiana to school. Um, you know, so that's where my, my confusion. The other the other confusion I have is the the solution to our problem was was um, you know the Brown versus the Board of Education, mm-hmm. and and the lack of understanding of it, how it subsequently evolved into what it is. And the young lady there was talking about charter schools. Private charter, uh, public po- charter schools, and then you know we, we don't discuss whether it's private or public. You know the demon is the is the uh, is the uh, 
is the uh, corporate is, it, is that what it's called corporate p- public school? Well, not, and, but, and actually, in Baltimore, all charter schools are public. public. That's right. There's no, there's no, there's no privately owned that's charter right. schools in Baltimore. But, but that's, but that's the the uh, three hundred pound gorilla that people use to scare people away from charter schools. Absolutely. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, and that's that's uh, that's horrible. Uh, you know, so we don't have. You know, I'm not saying you don't, Mark, but that conversation come when it when it does come come up. It's the boogeyman that everybody uses mm. to do, so we can't use this tool. You know, and to me, that tool was, was designed to, to be creative, come up with, uh, right. uh, you, know, uh, school, you know, schools that would enhance the, 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 the big public school. You know, but we're not talking about that. We're not talking about how in Brown uh, uh, housing, uh, you know, is a tool that's used against us. You know, it, but it's you know it's, it's an argument that we lost in Brown, mm-hmm. and so you know we, we we don't talk about that. So my point is, so we need to educate our community as to what tools are in our in our toolbox and what we, and how we can use them. Gene, appreciate the call. Thank you so much. Uh, and let me get another call in here. We'll come right back to a panel of four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Elizabeth, you're on the air. Welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate the discussion, and I always have. And I'm pushing eighty years old, so I. Mm-hmm have a little perspective on what I believe is if we don't know our roots, we can't find our wings. And in that regard, I would like to remind the listeners and so forth that in Baltimore now, we have an exhibit coming through of called Undesign the Red Line. And there are many of us who have lived under redlining, not just in Baltimore, but in other cities in the country. And... Uh, I'm going to go down to that exhibit, and if you could put, maybe put it on your link, it's, it's, it's already started, and it's going to be in Baltimore through July 9th, and uh, that, I think, can help us know our roots and find out what we can do about, essentially, undesigning the red line, because we're living with the consequences of it today. And we are. Yeah. And both both ending the red line and the red lining before right. all the red lines that we've uh, experienced mm-hmm. in the city are. I mean, as impact of the city is helped to set up what you said earlier, uh, Mark, where you were talking about Baltimore City being divided. I mean, I think this notion of two Baltimores, uh, we, we've touched on that a number of times on this show before. And that when I say two Baltimores, I'm not talking about just in terms of race. Because when I mention two Baltimores in the community, like, oh, you're talking about the white community and the black community. I'm really talking about the ways in which class mm-hmm. impacts this city. Uh, right. The caller before talked about how he chose to send his children to independent schools. And so he paid for education. There are a number of families, an overwhelming number of families who don't have that option. So you take the choice that's available to you, whether it's the the school down the corner or at the corner from your block or whether or not your kids have high enough composite scores where they can get into some of the citywide schools. I'm thinking about the polys and westerns and cities. When you don't have that option and the only option available to you is a school that is in your community that does not have a track record of sending students on to be college ready, when we start talking about two Baltimores, that's really what we're talking about, so, that great class so, divide. But the question I have, though, and I'll probably go back to the phones here, and Hank and Rodney, we're going to get your calls. I promise we're coming in. Whoever else calls in, try to get your calls as well at 410-319-8888 but how do we make the change right what makes the change uh what allows us to, to to not allow this to be the continual growing paradigm in baltimore of people who are poor and mostly african-american are left out 
well, of the progress I, of the city. I think that I think the one thing that we have to have leadership with vision um, that sees the opportunity that we have to change the narrative of the city. But the message is quite Joshua. So, what would that leadership of vision do? Right. What is that? What does that mean? What, what's it, what does <laughs> yeah. it do? Well, well, mm. well, they have to they have to buy into the idea that not all poor people don't deserve nice things, right? Uh, so there seems to be this concept of that, oh, well, I'm not connected to them, I don't see it, so I'm extremely disconnected from it, so I only focus on what I know. And we've seen it in several leadership moves, not just in city politics, uh, state politics, in different organizations where there's a disconnect um, between the work that we do and being educated on creating solutions and actually reaching the populations that we want to serve, right? Uh, and so sometimes organizations, people, uh, governments can get lost in the monotony of uh, wine and cheese, or some would say the talented tent, mm. and be totally disconnected from the people on the ground that need service and not know how to reach them. And so I think that that is something that we have to continuously focus on, making sure that not only are you qualified to put together a plan or a program here in this area, but you know how to reach the people that you want to serve, right? Uh, and so that's something that we don't see often. We see a lot of people who are very highly degree, very educated, put in positions put together programs and plans to serve people but don't know how to reach the people that they want to serve. And so there has to be a balance of those credentials as well as uh, effective connection um, to the people uh, that need to be served. Like how many people live in East and West Baltimore or even spend any time there, visit there, um, that have conversations and dialogues about these issues or working in any of the agencies. Uh, and these are questions that should be asked because there has to be a connection made with the populations we like to see served. Yeah, I, I mean, to echo um, Kay's point, I would say that I do feel like oftentimes we're stuck in a cycle that reinforces our class divisions. And again, referencing the schools, you know, we can look at, and it's interesting, you know, I'm not a lifelong uh, resident of Baltimore, but I got here fairly quickly and learned fairly quickly what were the schools that I should send my children to and what were the ones that I shouldn't send my children to. And that has a lot to do with what we have then decided is what looks good, what um, is the epitome of what we consider excellence and so those are the only places in which we need to strive towards and so we re we consistently reinforce that cycle of class to say that it only has to be a particular school to for you to strive towards in order to be successful when the reality is as a school system that gives the same amount of money per student to every school there should be um, there should be a common ground of how we are using that money to make sure that all of our students are being successful instead of only particular um, and how schools. Do you, how do you do that? I mean, how do you do that? I think some of the things, so, that, I was just thinking about something that, that Dr. Kim has done. One is, you know, th those who have the ability, those who have the time, who have the talent, who have the skills to be able to start charter schools. I think of the large homeschooling population here in the city of parents who are saying, you know what, I am opting out <coughs> of the box that you're trying to place my children in and I will educate them myself. It's trying to find ways where you get into the school systems yourself. There are numerous schools, I think about uh, schools here in Baltimore City, I think about Kip Academy, for example, where 
their parents are more involved. I think about where I sent my son for a short period of time over to Mount Washington. I mean, that was a school that was started by people in the communities who said, you know, we want to be able to have a safe place for our children to be educated and we're willing to buy into the school system and we're willing to help support it. When the school needed, you know, computers, it was parents who were donating $5 and 10 doing bake sales and doing whatever they can to make sure that their children have what they need. I know that a lot of these things are connected to class. I see Mark right. shaking his head. Right. I know, right. you know, there's that safety net. We talk about Mount Washington. Right. But when I go over to other communities where I'm over in West Baltimore and I'm working with the teachers <coughs> over there, it is how do we help the parents? What does it mean to even have the ability as a parent to say, oh, I need to go into the schools. If I'm working two jobs right. as a parent, you know, because I'm a former Baltimore City school teacher over at West Baltimore Middle School, a parent told me when I kept calling her house to complain about her son, she would answer the phone with a sign. She would go, you know, Miss Whitehead, my job is to get him there. Your job is to keep him there and teach him. So there's got to be some responsibility on both ends that you can have dynamic teachers and you do have dynamic teachers even in schools that are struggling. I won, you know, Maryland History Teacher of the Year at West Baltimore Middle School because they were so impressed that these kids could learn. I'm like, it's not that the kids can't learn. It's that we need to motivate them to help them understand that they start from a position of empowerment. We're not giving them information. They have information when they walk in and we're just building on that. I think we have to hold the school system accountable, and I and and I don't think that happens often. I I know that as a city, one of the things that I often say is that we know how to protest, but we don't know how to advocate, mm-hmm. and that's a limitation of what we have found ourselves able to do um, with the school system in particular, because we, um, in many ways, have seen that as an institution that should take care of our children, and we entrust our children um, to that institution. But if you go into some of these buildings, it becomes clear very quickly that they are not, some of our schools are not places that we should be entrusting our children. <laughs> we should not and, send people and, to at all. And that we real. should be questioning and challenging and demanding that the way in which our children are being educated or not must change. And if we know that we've got the models in the cities of how it can work and be successful, then those models need to be replicated. And we need to stop coming up with excuses for why it doesn't happen in certain other school buildings. So let me open the phone. Okay, I want to get these calls. A lot of calls are calling in about schools. I want to get to them. So go ahead, Josh, but quick, please. I was just going to say, and it seems, too, that we've isolated the focus on schools. And a, a bigger picture here, too, is that schools are a large part of it, but we also have to get back to a that sense of community, that what are the support systems that families need? Because oftentimes, and I've had teachers complain about this, to me personally, schools will get the blame for issues that extend so much further beyond the classroom than they have influence over. Uh, and so how do we focus on that holistic approach and make sure that we're putting services and programs in place that provide wraparound services mm. to look at the holistic family, right? And so community school models are really good at this, and Dr. Santelisi is a fan of community schools and making sure that our schools have folks that are equipped to go into the community and into the actual household, help parents get the resources to understand why they should show up to a parent-teacher conference. If a parent needs employment, what does that look like to help them get employment and help them get the resources that are needed to stabilize the family? Josh, as much as I agree with your point, what I, my only pushback is until 
Baltimore City Schools requires a guidance counselor, a social worker, a school psychologist in every single building of this school district and requires them to be in the building full time, five days a week. Only then will I believe that we are committed to the well-being in terms of wraparound services of our children, because that is not the structure that we follow now. And that is not what um, our various schools and the principals who are responsible for these budgets are held to. And until that is done, I think this is nothing but lipstick on a pig. So let me open the phone on that line. And I think that (laughs) maybe the city ought to think about what that investment would be to invest that kind of the money in our school system to allow that to occur and put the money there. Uh, and you might not lead as large a police budget. 410-319-8888. Mark, you're on the air. Hi, Mark. Good morning. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Hey, how y'all doing? Good. Good morning. Uh, great show. Um, uh, two things. Um, the young lady's absolutely right. You know, what, I, what I, I've been saying about uh, the social workers and, and all that stuff, we can utilize them uh, to bring health, like have a... Um, a special um, class that you could take health, emotional, mental, and physical health with a, with a, a conflict resolution component. I think that'll help a lot in the schools now nowadays. Also, um, you got a couple of churches, uh, Mark, that's, that's opened their doors. Um, you don't hear about a lot of the positive stuff going on in the community. Turnaround Tuesdays is excellent for ex-offenders mm-hmm. if you got a, a addiction problem. Uh, Zion Baptist Church, 1700 North Carolina Street, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. on Tuesdays. Macedonia Baptist Church, 718 West Lafayette mm-hmm. Avenue, um, 2 to 4 p.m. every Tuesday. Jobs, job resources, job training, career readiness, interview preparation, GED classes, job coaching, leadership development. Need, um, go to your action centers. This is where I get this information. Uh, where I have my community uh, meeting every Tuesday for, at 6 to 7 p.m., uh, 5225 York Road is our accent. And this is where I get a lot of information, need a job, help build schools. I have a, a, a 26 years of meeting uh, spiritual support group for um, addicts, alcoholics, and anybody who want to get their life together uh, at our accent. center. need a job, help build schools. Uh, their website is moedbaltimorecity.gov. What y'all was talking about, wraparound services, some programs that offer construction training, Center for Urban Families, they do a lot more than that. Humanium, Jumpstart, Lunia, and Second Chance. And just I'll just give out the number for Center for Urban Families, which is 410-376-5691. I'm glad y'all are talking about this. We missed one thing that that guy said, Mark. What's that? About... These young people out here, it starts with the adults. We've got 60,000 adults that's in hard places. That help is, is definitely available now that people are falling out and dying all over the place that need help. 99% of them got children. Mr. Zeke Cohen, I, I talked to him. I didn't know it was 83,000 children in this community. So if you got all those adults hooked on something, how many kids do you have out here in trouble that's in front of so- these stores and gas stations that sell these knives? The city council did a, a wimpy law, uh, and they sell these children these knives, and they don't ask their age. And that guy that was shot in front of 33rd Street Boulevard, he had two of them in his hand. The guy that had the mental health problem that right. was shot, 
He had two of them in his hand. So y'all take care. Thank you, Mark, thanks so much for that call. Let's get another caller in here, and we'll come back to our panel. 410-319-8888. You said a lot. I wrote all that down. Uh, I'd like to learn more about these action centers and what's happening at the Zion and Macedonia Baptist. Mm-hmm. 410-319-8888. Uh, Emmanuel, you're on the air. Oh, how are you doing there? Very well. Good morning. Okay. Uh, a lot of what I hear uh, about the school system and a lot of what I've witnessed due to the fact that I'm a spouse of a 13-year Baltimore City school teacher, these kids that come to these schools, Mark, they don't come with education on their mind for some reason. They come and they think school is a 100% social event. Now, that being said, the reason why they keep doing that is because there's no disciplinary structure in place in these schools that allow the teachers to administer their curriculum to the ones that want to receive it because it's so much disruption. Now, Disruption by like, other students, you mean? Yeah, I'm talking about the students caused the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about schools being... Uh, 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 administering curriculum to get the get the kids ready for for college. Guess what? If the teacher can't teach, because when she writes these referrals, the principals don't want the referrals. They send the kids right back in the classroom. So the other kids keep seeing this revolving door of nothing being done to the kids that caused the problem in the classroom. Now this has been going on for twenty years. Okay. And it's only getting worse because they're closing more schools, which means they're confining more kids in the classes, which means more disruptors are doing their thing on a daily basis. And there's no fear, like, like us out here in, in, in the civilian world, okay? We know that we step out of line and the police get a hold of us, we go into jail. That's for the ones that want to abide by the law and, and, and know that, hey, there's consequences for what you do. In these public schools, there's no consequences. And then there's another level. What about the kids that age out? What about the ones that I'm talking about as far down as elementary school, where these kids come in here, they come into the schools, they don't do no schoolwork, you know, and then they so, you know, got to give them a D, so they end up in the next grade, and they, they do the same thing year after year and to a point where they, they come to school in their mind <clears throat> that they don't have to do any schoolwork. And they cause a big-time problem. So, Emmanuel, I mean, it's, Emmanuel raises a really important issue here, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and he's married to a school teacher, and so kind of hears this every day, and I heard it every day all the time, too, and I'm working in the school system myself for many years. And I think that is real. Mm-hmm. And for us to say it's not real is absurd. No, no it is that's real. true. Right? Agree that's true. You. So, yeah. But this goes to the heart of the matter, what you were saying earlier, Kimberly, about what support services exist. That's right. One of the first shows I did here on education in 1993 on the air had to do with a then Lombard junior high or middle school, I think it was still by then, still middle school, called middle school, I mean to say. They had this program they experimented with that had went great guns and then it was got unfunded. I remember you talking about this before. Which was in-school suspension. Oh, Kids yes. did not leave yeah. because it disrupted. They went to special centers to help them get through what they were going through right. so they could become more productive. Right. That's what you're talking about, Kimberly. We That's had, exactly what I'm not, talking about. Inve- these kids cannot be allowed to disrupt the classrooms, but you can't throw them away either. You cannot right. throw them away. That's right. Yeah. 
And that's the part that's not happening. And it's important to also recognize that even policies that we make at the district level that then uh, filter down to our individual schools also directly impact what we see happening. And so when I first entered into the Baltimore City um, public school system with my children, you know, our former um, CEO uh, established a policy that required a a decrease in out-of-school suspensions for our students. So that meant that those students were remaining in our buildings and that meant that they were remaining in our buildings being disruptive in the classrooms because in order for them to be suspended outside of the building then became a direct reflection on the school leadership of the individual schools. So then what do school leaders choose to do? I have to keep the student here. And then that trickles down into our classrooms that then prevents actual learning from happening. So it's all very much a part of a a major system that we forget that these policies have direct influence on what's happening to our children. Absolutely. Joshua, Joshua, come over to Kay and then back to the phones. Joshua? No, you you can go ahead. They said it all right there. (laughs) I I just wanted to add, I think that with with what Kim is talking about in terms of, you know, looking at what happened with suspension rates and having to cut down, there are some principals, and I do want to speak up in support of them, who came up with creative ways, who Mm -hmm. didn't automatically say, I'm going to leave them in the classroom so they can continue to be disruptive. They did all kinds of things, but they had in-school suspension programs. They had intervention counselors. Some principals actually brought in, you know, parents to come in and do things with the students. You know, at where you're working with your children and you're also, you know, with your charter school, I work with training teachers. I mean, that is what I do in Baltimore City during my Summer Teachers Institute. I train teachers. We talk about classroom management. We talk about creative solutions to having disruptive students. We talk about, in addition to you talking about bringing in a child psychologist and bringing in those different things you said, I mean, we're talking about bringing in a trauma counselor mm, because absolutely. there are never students who come to school where someone in their family got shot last night or got shot at last night. That's right. And in the classroom, how do you teach reading and writing and arithmetic and they're dealing with the impact of death in their face? And parents send them to school because they have to make plans for a funeral and school in their mind is the safest place for them to be out of the way so they can get work done. So... They're principals and teachers who are being creative and trying to work within the system on behalf of their students. So let me try to get a call in before we end the hour. This has been really fascinating. 410-319-8888. Uh, let's go to Hank. You're on there. You've been holding a while. Brother, how you doing? How are you feeling, David Stein and young lady? Good to hear your voice as always, Hank. Oh. I, I, I remember back in the 70s and the 60s and 70s when I was coming up, right? Music, television, and everything had... Uh, positive reinforcement and affirmation of which direction you were going to go in or you should go in, right? And here now in this dance society, we do not hold, not y'all, but we do not hold our media to that standard to put out music or put out art or put out a television show which shows positivity and expression of black right? So then therefore, if we constantly see ourselves and allow ourselves to project damage into us, then that is what we're going to get. Till we learn to start doing that. Uh, what was the song they taught in school? Uh, um, I forget who does it, right? Sing, sing that song. Everybody sing along, right? <laughs> so right. everybody together in unison working towards something. It showed the positivity, and we don't have that. We don't have that transformation for our children. They show them anything different. If we sit there and let them watch the Rugrats and the Thunder Giants and the Power Rangers and don't show them 
daddy the dad a dinosaur or show them at something uh, at anthropology or something like that, we're never ever going to get anything different. Hank, it's always good to hear what you have to say. Let me try to get this other caller in here before the end of the hour. No, because it's a teacher who doesn't want to use his or her name but has something to say. Oh, yeah. Please go ahead, line two. Hi, uh, I'm a retiring educator, actually, and I wanted to just say that some of the um, initiatives in Baltimore City, which I consider to be uh, experiments, would have uh, been called out had students been allowed to be suspended. In other words, the data would suggest that some of these moves have negatively impacted school climate mm -hmm. and education and performance because the suspensions rate would have reflected that. So what you do is that you prohibit suspensions so that that data is never available to be examined. Right. Exactly. There are a number of things going on in Baltimore City. This disproportionate amount of uh, alternative routes to certification, right. teachers that, had, that are undertrained, mm. uh, getting rid of sports programs. How do you keep black boys in school and you don't have uh, sports programs? So, that, you know, there's a number of things that have happened. Right. I don't know if it's from ignorance or there are other agendas. But there are a number of things that have happened in Baltimore City and that are still going on that would have shown to be detrimental to students and teachers and schools and communities if they if students had had a suspension rate um, commensurate with the behaviors that are going on in the schools. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate the call. And, you know, we're trying to put together, and mm -hmm. you, you're more than willing to contact us here. It will write to me. I have a C on my name, marketsdinershow.org. We want to put together a panel of teachers, yes. uh, maybe mm. this Wednesday mm. at 11 o'clock, if we can get it together with teachers, to, to kind of talk just about those issues from your perspective. And we can also define what we mean by suspension. I mean, I, you may be – you're right. I, I don't necessarily think that suspension necessarily means you have to keep, put a kid back in the street. Right. But I think it means you have to deal with a child who is disrupting the school and the fabric of the classroom. Right. You can't let, and, that's, and that's really critical. And I think we are hiding those stats. Which is hiding. Them. I think so. And, We're burying and, them. And and then those kids end up getting buried themselves, either on the street corner by being shot or being busted and going yes. to jail. Yes. So yeah. so that's this is and that's why the schools play this critical role. I think that'll be a great panel with the teachers. I'm very interested. So in this that. is this is why we are just. I guess we're out of time. Are we out of time? Oh. We, don't? <laughs> we can't go another hour. That's it. That's it. Like, uh, I, I, the next show might not like that. Oh yeah. I'm like, we, we, we can continue our conversation somewhere over Belvedere, yeah, but we can keep talking. This is a great topic. It, it is an important topic. We're gonna, as long as we have this voice in the air, we're going to keep this conversation alive. That we promise you. We're going to do that. I want to say one thing, and I never say this on your show, but I do want to hear from teachers, teachers who have solutions, teachers who have concerns. I want them to reach out to you, Mark Steiner, and for you to forward that information to me. I'm putting together the Summer Teachers Institute at the Columbia campus of Loyola from July 10th through the 21st. We want teachers. We're paying teachers stipends. We have spots available. <coughs> But we're talking about these issues. Reach out if you're interested to Mark Steiner. Give your email address again, Mark. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard on the tell show. Tell me what you do, my show. <laughs> <laughs> Mark M A R C at Steiner S T E I N E R Show dot org. And do and and who we'd love to hear from you. For Kay's purposes, but also for the purposes of the show, right. to get your voices on the air over the summer to talk about where these, our schools are going, because we have to, and it needs it needs a, a radical reinvestment of funds and energy to turn this around, yes. and we have to stop losing all these children in our city, all these young black children, our children yes. out here, uh, who are getting lost, and they should not be allowed to be lost. Yep. And yep. teachers should be allowed to do the work they need to do. Yep. 
Amen to that. Dr. K. Whitehead, Dr. Kimberly Moffat, Mr. Joshua Harris, good to have the three of you with us. Thank you. And folks, thank you all for calling in and being part of the show today. It's always great to hear your thoughts and ideas. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. <coughs> our producer is Amani Spence. Our associate producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our editing and producer is Ali Post. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our theme music is by Juan Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org, to podcast the Mark Steiner Show, and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz, and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.